1: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: This economy is not designed to serve human beings. It is designed to serve capital efficiency. GDP and economic indicators are just going to turn on more and more of us over time.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, first up, I got a job announcement that I think will be of interest to at least some of you. We are hiring for a deputy policy editor. This is a great job for people who are interested in the kind of things we are interested in on the show. Uh, you should apply if you're an editor with some experience and you're obsessed with Clear pros. You believe policy is what makes politics actually interesting, right? I, we want somebody here who is is, is naturally obsessed with policy, who, who looks at the world and sees nothing but policy stories. You know, somebody who who likes looking at NBR papers for fun. Uh, so go to VoxMedia.com/careers again. VoxMedia.com/careers to check that out. Uh, second announcement this week: Explained on Netflix, our Netflix show. I tell you about it a lot, but this week, y'all, this week we have Kristen Bell. Yeah, yeah, that Kristen Bell, Veronica Mars, Kristen Bell, good place Kristen Bell, narrating an episode on immortality, on whether we can and should live forever, the the science and and the ethics of it.
3: If the human lifespan is 120 years, why, even in developed countries, do most of us only make it two-thirds of the way there? What is it about old age that kills us? And is it treatable?
2: This is an episode that includes not just Kristen Bell, but Kwame Anthony Appiah, the former guest on the show, amazing philosopher. This episode is great. This episode is so good that you begin to wonder, is this, could this be the good place? All right, today I've got Andrew Yang, the founder of Venture for America. He's the author of The War on Normal People. Uh, He's a long shot candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. He's running a campaign pushing a universal basic income as an answer for a jobless roboticized future where AI and automation and globalization have displaced tens of millions, maybe even more of Americans. Uh, (laughs) The way he puts this is, it's scary. His book is scary. Uh, Is the future without jobs will come to resemble either the cultivated benevolence of Star Trek or the desperate scramble for resources of Mad Max. So either Eden or hell. That's what we're looking at. This is a question I have. Uh, and Andrew's a smart guy. I've known him for a long time. I have, and you'll hear this, enormous respect for the work he's done. I think Venture for America is a really, really great project. And I hear this from a lot of smart people, this view of our economy and also what is needed to fix it. So, so here's my question. Is the present and the future of our economy really the scrim? And then if it is or even if it isn't, is UBI the way to go? That, that's what this episode is about. As always, my email is EzraKleinShowOfBox.com. Here we go. Andrew Yang, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ezra. I find it so unbelievably depressing that you have written the book you have. I just want you to know that. Uh, you mean the book itself was depressing, or my active? No, it <laughs> is. That, it is. You are the one who wrote it. Because let's speak of Venture for America, because that's why I say this. Venture for America, it, it was a project. That struck me as having such a hopeful view of the economy, and and that view seems to have darkened. So, why don't you begin by telling the story behind Venture for America, what it was, and and how you came to do it? Sure. So that requires me to go back a ways. You and I met when I was
0: uh, the founder and CEO of Venture for America. So I was a corporate attorney for five unhappy months in the early two thousands, and then I left to start a dot com that did not work out, and then uh, worked at another startup, and then eventually became the CEO of an education company called Manhattan Prep. And while I was there, I personally taught the analyst classes at Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley, McKinsey. And I saw all of these young, smart, ambitious people that didn't enjoy their jobs. <laughs> they kind of reminded me of me. What what were at you teaching? The law them? Firm. Well, at that time, I was teaching them how to do well on the test again to business school because that was our primary offering. And as the CEO of that company, I got to teach the fancy clients. They said, "Hey, you know, we'd love the CEO." And I said, "Sure." So when that, that company was acquired, I made a list of the problems that I saw, and one of the biggest problems was that we had so much talent and energy heading to a small handful of industries and organizations on the coasts. And so I thought, well, what would be the ideal use? of a young smart person, in my opinion. And this was right after the financial meltdown, so I I felt very dispirited with the, the direction of the country. And so I thought the most wholesome thing, the most effective thing that a young enterprising graduate could do would be to head to Detroit or St. Louis or Baltimore or Cleveland or New Orleans and help a company grow and then maybe even start a company. So I started an organization, which is when you and I met, uh, Venture for America, in 2011. I donated 120k of my own money to seed the organization, and then we just went around recruiting enterprising college graduates who wanted to learn to be entrepreneurs. So I I did that
2: for uh, about seven years between 2011 and last year. So. What I liked about Venture for America or one of the things I really liked about it was it was a very hopeful view of both our economy and what the solutions to our problems could be. That that if we could take these really talented people who were going into these rent-seeking activities like corporate law or or high-speed trading on Wall Street and and instead get them to to work at, say, a renewable energy company in the suburbs of, of Detroit, that we could spread prosperity broader, that we could create jobs in a lot of different places and your view about what the economy needs, what our problems are, what might solve them, it, it seems to have darkened quite a bit since then. So so, so tell, me, tell me what's changed. Tell me why you think the Venture for America approach just won't be enough now.
0: Yes. So I, I'm a Northeastern product. I, I was born in upstate New York, went to school in New England. Uh, and so I had never been to uh, Michigan, Ohio, Western PA, Missouri, Alabama, Louisiana before starting Venture for America. And so you arrive in these places, and in many of them, you see the aftermath of the decimation of manufacturing jobs, or that's like a post automation environment. And a few things hit home to me over those years six and a half years uh, traveling the country. The first is that even if the entrepreneurs I was working with I worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs around the country, and we helped create about 3,000 jobs over my time at Venture for America, even if they're successful, their companies will employ dozens, maybe hundreds of people, and they'll tend to be college graduates or engineers. They are not going to employ thousands of high school graduates the way that the old industrial concerns used to. Uh, The second thing was that in many of these environments, Uh, A woman said to me in Ohio, Northeast Ohio, she said, around here, change is a four-letter word. And I did not understand what she meant by that. But what I grew to understand was that for her, when things changed, it generally meant bad things happened, where a business closed or someone left. Uh, And the level of despair and anger in these environments shocked me. Like I often felt like I was traveling between eras or dimensions when I'd fly between Cleveland and San Francisco or St. Louis and New York. And I would go between those places and think to myself, holy cow, like this country is not having the same set of experiences at all. Like there's a level of dynamism on the coast that people in the interior are not experiencing. And the third thing was that for many of these communities, the vision of success was to leave where if you were a bright young person in Ohio or Michigan or Missouri, you were trying to get to New York or California. And so when I was arriving saying, hey, let's build awesome businesses here that are going to help grow the economy. I mean, I'll tell one story about a company in Providence where they were doing great. They had real revenue. And then they were offered a big slug of venture capital money to move to San Francisco, uh, which of course they did. And then that company went from 100 employees in Providence to zero over a period of time because the inequities between regions were just so great. So when you say that my vision of the economy got darker, I see that our challenges are much, much more fundamental. As proud as I am of Venture for America, which continues to go strong today, uh, and these hundreds of entrepreneurs doing great things around the country, we need to go much, much bigger if we're going to solve the root causes of the fact that our economy is now turning on. More and more Americans, uh, and that's just going to accelerate with new technologies.
2: So uh, I want to I want to go to the new technologies. I want to quickly put a pin in something that I want to come back to later. This idea of the coast being where prosperity is and and the interior being where it isn't, because this is something I, I want to push on because I, I think this language ends up uh, obscuring some things. Or at least I want to I want to hear your answers on that. But make the technological case to me because your book it is a procession of the scariest facts about what technology could do to the future of work, both in this country and, and frankly, in the entire world. Make the case to me. Scare me. Well, Ezra, I tried to keep everything as close to the ground as possible. So what,
0: what I'd want to convey to anyone listening to this is that the technological changes that are going to completely disrupt many, many millions of American jobs are no longer speculative. They are here with us today. The reason why Donald Trump won the election of 2016 is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the swing states he needed to win between 2000 and 2015. And it's about to get much, much worse because we're going to triple down on eliminating the most common jobs in the U.S. economy, which are in order – Administrative and clerical work, which includes call center workers, retail and sales workers, food service and food prep workers, truck drivers and transportation, and manufacturing. Those five job categories comprise about half of all American workers. They make about $15 an hour. Their average education is high school or one year of college. And if you look at them, you do not require any leaps of the imagination to see how this is going to play out over the next handful of years. Google recently demonstrated software that can do the job of an average call center worker, and there are still two and a half million call center workers in the United States making $14 an hour. So anyone listening to this, what do you think the timeline is going to be for Google software to be able to outperform an average call center worker? And when that does happen, that's not going to result in a 1,000 or 10,000 jobs lost. That's going to result in hundreds of thousands of jobs, because when AI can outperform one call center worker, it can outperform them all. 10% of American workers work in retail right now, and 30% of malls are gonna close in the next four years. Guaranteed. If you're listening to this, you can see the storefronts around you closing. What most people don't realize is that the average retail worker, that's their means of survival. It's not like a transitory opportunity. The, The median age of a retail worker is 39 years old, majority female high school educated, making about $12 an hour. So that's not me hypothesizing about advanced technologies. That's just the real economic change that's on us. McDonald's recently announced they're going to roll out self-service kiosks in every location in the United States. And the one that you know I, I can talk about at some length, and I'm very happy to do so, uh, is truck driving, which is the most common job in 29 states. There are 3.5 million truck drivers, average age 49, 94% male, Average education again, high school or one year of college. The big question that I think we should be asking is if robot trucks hit the highways in the next five to 10 years, what's going to happen to these three and a half million truck drivers and the five million workers that work in truck stops, motels, diners in these small towns around America that rely on a truck stopping periodically and the driver to get out and buy something. So these are the changes that we can see coming that are completely predictable. On the trucking side, the reason why there's so much excitement about it is that the cost savings and productivity gains are estimated to be $168 billion per year if we can automate truck driving. It will also save thousands of lives, so there's a very powerful moral argument for it. It's one of the biggest pots of gold in American business, and my friends in Silicon Valley tell me that they are 98% of the way there. So that's where the irresistible force hits the immovable object because – only 13% of these truckers are unionized. It's hard even to have a productive conversation as to what the
2: transition looks like. So I'm going to take the, the other side. of it. So I want you to persuade me this is true because I am a skeptic of this vision of the economy. And let's start. Here, because as you say, we are in the midst of the very trends you're talking about. What you're saying, the the argument you're making here is about the technologies that are more or less ongoing or, as you say, are are soon to hit. You you said that Donald Trump was elected because of things we did since 2000. You know, we're, we're talking about call center workers and obviously there's already a lot of automated call technology. There's a, a famous quote from The Economist, I think it's Paul Samuelson, about the computer era. and This was back in, I think it was the 80s or early 90s, where he said, you can see the computer revolution everywhere but the economic statistics. and That seems true here too. The, the robots are going to come for all our jobs thesis, as compelling as it feels to people, does not seem to be showing up in any of our economic data, really anywhere. And you talk about this a little bit in, in the book. So first, give me, give me the argument you make on this. Why do you think the, all the economists who look at this and hear this and say, yeah, all, all these Silicon Valley folks who think the robots are coming for everything, they're wrong. Why, why do you think they're wrong? Well, a lot of it is that uh, the changes we're describing will not
0: appear in the data until they do. Uh, in other words, right now, if you were to try and look for traces of self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles in the economy, you'd find zero because they're not there. But we all know it's coming. We're not ostriches. Like, you know, you can look around and say, oh, you know, tens of billions of dollars are being spent to make sure this happens in a particular time frame." And the internal projections of a company like, like I shouldn't name names, <laughs> one of the big ride sharing companies, they think that half of their rides are going to be given by autonomous vehicles by 2022. And those are people that are being paid millions of dollars to make
2: accurate projections. But would you would you not take the under on that bet? I mean, my my belief that half of an Uber or Lyft's car rides are gonna be done by autonomous vehicles four years from now, like I would put that at five zero percent, five percent? Do you really believe that's
0: true? You know the great thing, Ezra, or the terrible thing, depending upon your perspective, is it doesn't matter if we're off by like two years, five years. I mean, Driving will still be one of the most common jobs in seven years and so it, even if their timeline is off by a few years, we're just talking about like a stay of of job execution, if you will. I mean like we can be off by a little bit and the general uh, story is still the same.
2: I actually don't think that's true and here's why. So take farming, right? Farming used to be the single most common job in the American economy. It's dominant in a way that no job is today and today if i'm not wrong i think it's something like fewer than 2% or less than 1% of the country is engaged directly in farming and that was a transition that happened in the economy amidst a period of tremendous economic growth i mean we all believe that the american economy is better today than it was when the we were all farming was farming sure. now what's happened is that farming went away as a job not as a production obviously we we actually produce more food today than we did then slowly it didn't happen all at once and so One thing that I sometimes see in this argument is that there is a jump made between the idea that something is going to happen over time and something is about to happen all at once. A world in which trucking virtually disappears even as a form of employment by 2100 – is a very, very different one than a world where it disappears by 2030 because during that period, new jobs are being created, um, productivity is increasing. I mean, all kinds of things are happening that is allowing the economy to adjust. There's huge regulatory issues. There's huge issues of comfort. There's a lot of things that can be done better by computers now, but people just don't like them done by computers. And, And so I think this matters. I think that there's a weird thing that happens in this discussion of economic calamity coming in which people move very quickly between the idea that something is happening now and the idea that something is happening soon and all at once and the idea that something is just going to happen in the future. And there's a very, very, very different ability to adjust things that are happening in the long run versus all at once. If you say to me, hey, look, we're going to have massive productivity improvements over the next 100 years, I'll say, great. Um, The economy not only not does it adjust to that; it needs that. One of our biggest problems is we're not seeing enough productivity improvements now. But if you tell me it's all going to happen in two years and we're going to wipe out truckers tomorrow, well, then we're going to have riots in the streets. And, and so I do. I think this stuff is really is is really different. And the reason why I push on the economic statistics now is that the place where I want to look to make sure there's rigor in my intuitions is, okay, am I seeing something coming, right? Am I seeing something in the unemployment numbers, something in the productivity numbers, something somewhere in the economic sentiment numbers, something where I can say, hey, I, I feel this, but am I seeing it? And the thing is, everybody seems to feel this is true and it, we're not seeing it. And, and it can't all just be happening in the future. I mean, at some point we have to be seeing it.
0: Oh, I completely agree. And, and what's really pushed me to make this, to me, like the core issue that our society should be facing right now and our political institutions as well, is I dug into what happened in terms of the social adjustment of uh, manufacturing workers. Where, like as I took economics in college, and so the theory would be that if you were to automate away a large number of jobs, they would get retrained, reskilled, move for new opportunities, increased productivity, economic growth. And then when I dug into the numbers, what I found was that almost half of the displaced manufacturing workers in Michigan and Indiana left the workforce and never worked again. And about a quarter of them filed for disability and never worked again. Uh, And so the adjustment that you'd hope would happen is not happening on the ground where the rates of interstate migration in America are at multi-decade lows. So what you would hope would happen would be that people would move and shift for new opportunities, um, but they're not. And in terms of the economic indicators, and you've read my book so you have a sense of it, but our labor force participation rate started dropping as soon as we started getting rid of manufacturing workers in large numbers, whereas we're talking today, the labor force participation rate is 62.9%, which is a multi-decade low. And the same levels as El Salvador and the Dominican Republic, not to knock on those countries, but those are not exactly the comparables you want. And a lot of that exiting the workforce is among unskilled men. And so at this point, almost one out of five prime working age men in America between the ages of 21 and 30 has not worked in the last 12 months. And the indicators get even more bleak when you start tying in what's happening to things like life expectancy. Our life expectancy has declined for the last two years, almost unheard of in a developed country because of a spike in suicides among middle-aged Americans and drug overdoses, where now seven Americans are dying of drugs every hour. So these are real numbers that are with us here and now, and they're completely consistent with a narrative of blasting away many, many manufacturing jobs and those people then going home and killing themselves and disintegrating and getting angry and despair ridden. So I agree with you that if you stretch the timeframe long enough, then things get better and the time frame does matter. Totally agree with that. But th- there's also this optimism around the adaptability and resilience of people in these communities and the government's intervention. And the reality is people are not adapting well right now in the midst of our current changes. And even if you were to take, again, the most predictable things, which are like 30% of malls are going to close or storefronts closing all around the country, what is the average retail worker who makes $12 an hour? What's their next move? More and more, their next move is going to be to file for a disability. And that's exactly what we're
2: seeing, again, in the numbers. So so I want to put the drug question to the side for a minute. The question of why we're having the opioid crisis i think is an interesting one and and i'm not 100% convinced that it's a it's an economic outgrowth but i do want to talk about the labor force participation thing because there's this pretty fascinating debate about whether or not the economy we're seeing is a good economy as it looks in a lot of statistics or a bad one. And, and the argument that people often make for it's a bad one is, well, look, labor force participation is, is unusually low. And you say it's down to 62.9, which is you know down like roughly three percentage points from where we would think its norm is. And a lot of that seems to just be aging. Our country is getting older. And so in the numbers that I've seen, half two-thirds is just sort of aging and, and the things we would expect around that. Paul Krugman and, and and Jason Furman and a number of liberal economists have been doing this fascinating, I think, argument about this where it's like what would you expect to correlate with an economy that looks good but is bad and a, an economy where say unemployment is at 4% but that's not really telling you what you want it to tell you. And I think you'd expect then to see you know, in Gallup data and polling data, people are saying the economy is bad, but they're not. They're saying it's really good. And if you look at that stuff, the numbers are higher than they've been since 2000. Or maybe you'd see it in you know, what employers are saying, but they all say their big problem is they can't find enough workers. Or maybe you'd see it in um, wage data, but in the past couple of years, there have been actually pretty big wage gains, the biggest since we've seen in the late 90s among the bottom 40% of the income distribution, which is actually – impressive. Um, We've not had high wage gains at the top, but we've had big ones at the bottom. So that suggests to me there is some demand coming now for less skilled workers. The reason I push on this is that I think there are a couple of views you can have of the economy right now and, and which one you have ends up pushing you in very different directions. So it's like there's a view of the economy which is we're going through a calamity, a, a generational or maybe even historical calamity where everything is in upheaval and we need to change how we're thinking about everything. That would be one view and I think that's the sort of robots are coming for us and they're already sort of here view. There's another view in which you know, we've got a lot of people who – you know, in a big country, millions of people whom even the normal change in the economy or a little bit of abnormal change, they're not adjusting well and they're not going to adjust well. And we really, really need to think differently about how we help them. But that's a very targeted set of questions. Um, You you, you really need to think about how to help specific people. And so like then I don't think – and this will get us into some of your solutions. Then I think you're in a weirder place if you start talking about universal solutions like basic incomes and others. And there's this other question of – you know the economy is always going through upheaval. In fact, some of the problem might now, might right now be that we're not going through as much as we wish we were. We're not seeing productivity improvements. If you look at a lot of the economists, they think we're not getting wage gains because productivity growth is so low. And actually, our biggest problem is that there's not enough sort of dynamism in the economy itself, that for all the narrative of dynamism, we're lacking a lot of it. And Then you need a whole different set of solutions. You don't just need solutions for helping people cope. You actually need to somehow supercharge the core of the economy itself, which I don't think many people are talking about very well at all. And So the reason I push here is that I think people have gotten very caught in a narrative, that there's a huge amount of upheaval happening that is somehow affecting everyone and that leads you to a lot of solutions, um, which may be good for other reasons, but that are about protecting people from the vicissitudes of an overly dynamic economy. And It seems to me we're in something closer to either number two or number three, which is an economy where there is some upheaval, but there usually is, where we're not doing a good job helping the people who are, are really hurting because we usually don't. and We need to solve that, but you know, arguably we need to solve it in a in a more targeted way. And then if you want to talk about the big stuff, maybe that's good for other reasons. But as a kind of an economic need, I'm not sure it justifies it. You know, I
0: work with a lot of young people and, and they feel like this economy is stacked against them. And, you know, I know you, you know many young people as well, but, but some of the stats that speak to me about The fact that financial insecurity is now the new normal in American life, where 59% of Americans can't pay an unexpected $500 bill, Uh, two-thirds say they're living month to month, or paycheck to paycheck. Uh, And there's this mindset of scarcity that is sweeping many, many American communities, and it's uh, showing up in social and political dysfunction. So there are certainly people who are thriving in America today, um, but those people— in my mind, are getting slowly outnumbered more and more by people that are forced to drive Uber in addition to teaching a you know a class during the day. Like as a full-time school teacher, there was even a marketing campaign where Uber said, "Hey, teachers, like come drive an Uber because like you'll be great drivers." And there's an like expectation now that even a full-time school teacher will need a second job, and that that's treated as the new normal. So. You and I both see the same numbers where 57% of the income gains over like the last number of years have gone to the top 1%. And that economy uh, is just going to become more and more extreme over time. Uh, Sure, in like the years 9 and 10 of an expansion, there might be some wage gains at the bottom. But the thing that scares me is when the knives come out during the next recession, which will come, because that's when we're going to see just how productive these companies can be with a smaller number of workers. The fast food companies will start automating burger flippers and say, well, it's a recession. Like It's time. We're, we're going to see this massive wave of automation during this next recession. And in my mind, we are completely unprepared for what that means. And most Americans are unprepared because most Americans don't have the capacity to really save much money or, or have much
2: of a cushion. Uh, I do think that question of the next recession is a, is a good one because I do think if you began to see this happening, you would see it coming out of a recession. There would be some kind of structural adjustment that would happen then and then the aftermath would look different than what we've been used to. Uh, I I can't say if that will happen and I think one of the the places I come from on this is that in the aftermath of the Great Recession – I had begun to buy into more of the arguments about genuine structural lasting change in the economy, that, that between the amount of inequality we're seeing – and I'm worried because I'm worried that in this conversation I'm going to get put here as somebody who thinks like the economy is good, which I don't. Um, <laughs> the reason I want to be skeptical on this and, and the reason I want to push is that I, I actually think our narratives about this are really important because uh, as we'll talk about, what you think the problems are ends up having a lot to do with what you think the solutions need to be and what solutions would actually work. But. I bought into a lot of the arguments when we were watching the slow recovery happen and these wage gains that just kept being absent and these employers who just kept not adding jobs, that something had changed. You know, Larry Summers' secular stagnation or automation or globalization or whatever it was, something was different. And now the way we were recovering from things was just – it was not working. And then the recovery just kept going. And I just did this interview. uh, It was on Today Explain, not this podcast, but with Betsy Stevenson, who's this fantastic labor market economist. And she was in. The Council of Economic Advisors under Obama, and she was like, "This is a good economy now." From everything we can tell, from the way we think about economies, and it doesn't mean there's not pain out there, and unemployment, and people who are hurting, right? But it is about as good an economy as we've seen in a long time, and even the wage gains are concentrating at the bottom end of the market. And it just, I,
0: but it's I, good. You feel more uplifted now, now, Ezra. I mean, I mean, that's that's a positive thing. Um, I certainly hope that I am wrong about just how fundamentally brutal this economy both is and is going to be. So certainly someone like you thinking
2: that things are on the up and up actually makes me breathe a, a tiny bit easier. One of the reasons I've come to think they are, that I've become a little bit more convinced than I was two years ago, is just polling, right? There's a lot of reasons, I think, to not trust economic data. But I think that what I would want to see is economic data becoming uncorrelated with how people feel about the economy. But if you like look at the – I was just looking at the Gallup polling as I prepared for this conversation and I was really struck by it, that you have now 67 percent say it's a good time to get a job, which is more than has said that since 2002 when Gallup began asking the question. Only 14 percent now say economic issues are the country's most pressing problem. More people say the economy is excellent or good than they have since 2000. Now, that doesn't mean that when we have another recession, it won't all flip or that we can't go into something different. But that's the place where, to me, if something were really changing, you'd begin to see it, right? If people weren't feeling this economy, then I'd expect that in the polling, we'd see them talking about it differently than they've talked about economies that looked like this in the past, but they don't. And I'm just curious if that makes you feel any differently or, or, or how you explain that away if you think that sort of doesn't change the narrative. Someone uh, is going to be upset at me about this, but like the first thing I thought of was the psychological impact
0: of Trump on some of the respondents where mm-hmm. there, there have been some people that said like, oh, things are great um, because they, they feel better about the economy. That was the first thing that came to mind. I think that's
2: me. probably true, though.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it very well may be. You know, it's like I, I was in Iowa for the last week talking to people and uh, there's like a significant minority of people that hold that view that things
2: are awesome because they like Trump. One of the things that has been the most interesting to me uh, about all this is that, you know, in 2016 there was this huge narrative of economic anxiety, and we're now in an economy that looks mostly like 2016. Job growth has been a little bit slower than it was that year, actually, <laughs> but you know it's just kind of continued on the same pathway. And there's been this complete flip, not just in how people feel about it, but in who feels what way about it. Um, Democrats feel much more poorly about it. Republicans feel much better. And you know, if you believe anything about people voting based on the condition of the economy, you believe that they're voting on how things feel for them. And there's just been no change that would have led to that flip. And it just means that there's almost nothing in American life that operates outside of our our political blinders, that our our partisan lenses are so red tinted and blue tinted that they overwhelm even the literal state of the economy around us and both like how we feel about things and how we end up voting. And that... I don't know, that, that seems a little bit scary because, you know, yes. if you like the, the narratives <laughs> about democracy are such that at the very least, people are gonna vote on the economy. So if the people in charge screw up the economy too bad, then they'll be thrown out. But if they don't even vote on that, and if they if they're just gonna look at it whichever way they, they want to anyway, I mean, then we're a little bit screwed, at least from the perspective of actually holding leaders accountable.
0: Well, I will say that there are some people in Iowa that feel very much betrayed by President Trump um, on the tariff issue because that has hit some of the farming communities Mm -hmm. directly. So that rationality does reign in in some precincts at the extreme where they they can see that something the president did actually hurt them economically, that, that matters.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
2: So I want to talk through some of the ideas you bring up now to deal with either the future that's here or the future that's coming. Let's talk about universal basic income. Uh, this is something that's a big topic in my house because my wife, I should say, wrote a book about this around the same time that the yearbook came out. Uh, hers is called Give People Money. So I've had a lot of thinking about this uh, in my immediate social circle. Uh, make the, tell me a little bit about UBI. Make the case to me.
0: Yeah. So universal basic income is a policy where every member of a country or political group receives a certain amount of money for their basic needs. So my plan as president is for every American to receive $1,000 a month free and clear, which I would call the freedom dividend because it tests better if you call it the freedom dividend than if you call it universal basic income. And this goes all the way back to Thomas Paine. Uh, For people who think it's far out, a plan almost identical to this passed the House of Representatives in 1971 under Richard Nixon. Martin Luther King was for it. Milton Friedman was for it. A 1,000 economists signed a letter in a study saying this would be great for the economy and society. And to your point before, Ezra, about the fact that we need to both protect people and also make our economy much more dynamic, a universal basic income would do both of those things. The Roosevelt Institute found that giving American adults $1,000 a month would grow the economy by 13% or $2.5 trillion over time and would create 4.5 million new jobs. So the, the plan is to build the opposite of the Republicans' trickle-down economy where you give money to the rich or, or big companies and hope it literally trickles down. I mean, you know, if you think about that image, it's actually kind of offensive. So the goal is to build a trickle-up economy where you build it from people up, their families up, the communities up, and the best way to do that is to put money directly into their, into their hands through a universal basic income. Now, one state has had, as you know, since you're more expert on this than just about anyone, but one state has had a policy identical to this in effect for 36 years, and that state is Alaska, where a Republican governor made the case who would you rather get the money, the oil money? The government who's just going to screw it up and waste it, or you, the Alaskan people? And so Alaskans now today receive between one and two thousand dollars a year, no questions asked. And in Alaska, it has created thousands of jobs, improved children's health, and lowered income inequality. Uh, But the, the dynamics of our economy are such that if you want to address income inequality, you're actually going to have to put money into people's hands. And a universal basic income is the best and most direct way to do
2: that. One of my big lessons from the the UBI stuff is that people mean a lot of different things when they talk about it. So I want to separate out two types of this and and hear your argument for, for which you prefer. So there's what people think of as universal basic income, which as you say, is a check, usually monthly to everybody, right? Universal. And then there's a negative income tax, which is what sort of Milton Friedman and, and Richard Nixon and, and that crew were for, which is... It's a universal basic income. Basically, you tax it away above a certain income threshold. So it's a universal basic income, but you only get it if you make less than, let's say, just hypothetically $25,000. Above that, you don't get anything. And the upside of that one is it's more targeted to the people who need it. It costs a lot less money, so it's easier to figure out how to pay for it. You're proposing, as I understand it, the true universal income here. Why do you prefer a universal income that gives money to me or to – you know, Ivanka Trump uh, as opposed to the one that concentrates its dollars and so can possibly give more of them to just the people who really need it?
0: Well, there are a few reasons why I'm for a true universal basic income. One is to avoid any stigma associated with it, where if everyone gets it, then it doesn't it become a transfer between the rich and the poor, which is what happens with a negative income tax. The second is the administrative element where with the EITC, which I'm a big fan of, uh, the Earned Income Tax Credit, studies have shown that over 30% of people that could get it don't get it because of administration. And With a negative income tax, you're still relying upon people to report their incomes and then there's like a time lag and if circumstances change, then there are issues associated with that which in my mind would end up leaving at least some people out in the cold. And the third thing is that my way of paying for it, because one of the big traps we're in right now is that as artificial intelligence and software and automation do more and more work, uh, the public is not really going to be seeing a lot of those gains. And so the way I would pay for this is through a value-added tax, uh, which is something that every industrialized country except for us already has. It does a great job, a much better job, of, of capturing the gains from new technologies. But it also makes it so that if Ivanka Trump gets $12,000, we don't really care because she consumes so much um, that we're going to end up getting much more from Ivanka than she's getting. So uh, those are some of the reasons why I prefer universal basic income, uh, the administrative elements, the stigma, and the fact that if you pay for it in a certain way, you're going to wind up
2: getting a lot of that value in any case. L- let me uh, ask you about the stigma side. because, So Robert Greenstein um, is the head of the Center on Budget and Policy Parties and, and he's sort of one of the social safety net thinkers that I respect most and he wrote a piece about why he's not a fan of, of UBIs and, and he had a pretty interesting argument here. Um, and and the, the main thing he said was that there's this idea among liberals that programs that are universal are are, are destigmatized and programs that are targeted are stigmatized. And his argument was that it's not that way at all, that it's programs that are based around work that are destigmatized and programs that are are non-work based are are stigmatized. So a Medicare, a social security, people believe they worked for those. Um, But it's a program like welfare or uh, SNAP or things that people think people are not working for and and often that have a racial cast to them, but, but not always that end up being very heavily stigmatized and so that the the real thing that a UBI has to triumph over is the deep deep sense in American life that there are people who deserve help and people who don't deserve help. Even now, if you look at what Republicans want to do, they're trying to add work requirements to, to virtually everything, right? To food stamps, to Medicaid, to anything that you might get, um, even if the main beneficiary of what you're getting is your children. And in doing so, they're, they're playing on something that has been very powerful in American life. And this to me is a thing that the people who talk about UBI don't grapple with enough, it's often framed as some kind of replacement for for a work-based world when in fact for it to survive, it seems to me that it will need to overcome the unbelievably deep belief Americans have, that the only way you could possibly deserve help as an adult is you either are working and you're not making enough money from that, um, but, but you're working, right? People are very sympathetic to the idea that you're working 40 or 60 hours and you're not making enough to feed your family. Or you're looking for work but there just isn't any work to get you, right? The, 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 you're just in an economically depressed area and you know what? It's not your fault. But I worry with a UBI that you'd end up with this very large class, particularly in a, in a roboticized economy where let's say unemployment isn't 100 percent or 80 percent but it's 15 percent. Um, you'd end up with this big stigmatized class of people living off a UBI not working. They'd be looked at the way people who are on disability are, are often looked at now and it just it wouldn't get you away from stigma at all because the real stigma that we have in in this country is that you know work is what makes you a worthwhile human being.
0: Yes, and and that is one of the fundamental challenges, Ezra, because when when you look again at these numbers with a dwindling labor force participation rate, particularly among unskilled men, improved technology is going to end up, in my opinion pushing us to evolve our sense of both work and value very, very quickly. And if you look at many of the things that we know are core to the human experience, parenting, being a caregiver, the environment, increasingly for many communities, journalism because not everyone can be Ezra Klein <laughs> and have like you know, a phenomenal audience a podcast, environmental sustainability, volunteering in the community, religious associations, there are all these activities in the community that the market values at zero or close to zero or increasingly less. And so if right now we follow the market's valuation of our work, it is going to ruin us over time. And that is the big challenge. That's the big transition because, as you say, Americans are somewhat obsessed with work. And that's one of the things that's driving us crazy right now is that there are all of these Americans that are are getting pushed to the side economically and they don't know what their work is. And so what we have to do as a society, in my opinion, is create a different sort of economy with more and more touch points for people at different skill levels, different regions, and that's the project of this age. So one of the suggestions I know you know I make is that we should come up with like a a way to start valuing people's time intrinsically um, through a practice called time banking where if you do something positive in the community, You get a time dollar that you can then use with someone else. And so you're right that in a world where everyone's getting UBI, like the challenges become different. Um, But I, I do think that this evolution is something that we have to confront as a society. And one of the examples I gave in a speech in Iowa is that my wife is at home with our two boys, five and two, one of whom has special needs. She works a lot harder than I do, but the market values her work at zero. And so if we expand the notion of work, which is something that universal basic income would help us do, it would begin to compensate parents and caregivers. It would begin to recognize different forms of work, which is where we have to go, because GDP and economic indicators are just going to turn on more and more of us over
2: time. So I think this is such an interesting point. I'm really glad you brought up uncompensated work, because... I find myself much more attracted to the radical or in some cases even utopian arguments for UBI than I am to the practical or pragmatic ones. It seems to me that if you want to deal with poverty, there are much more targeted ways to do it, negative income taxes and and all kinds of other programs that I think make more direct sense and would be a lot cheaper. And as you sort of heard, I'm skeptical about the robots taking our job stuff, but also – if you've got a teamster uh, and this is a point made by Dylan Matthews who's a colleague of mine has done amazing amazing writing on, on universal basic incomes. If you have a teamster who is a truck driver and was making $75,000 a year or $65,000 a year and he loses his job to a robot but now he's getting a $12,000 UBI. Like that that doesn't that doesn't, that doesn't solve, necessarily the solve the problem. Yeah, not only not necessarily it's it's almost insulting, right? It, it, whatever it is, it is not a solution to that problem. He's got this great line he says that um ubi ends up being very often both too much and not enough um you know it's too much for some problems and not enough for others and he's a i should say a supporter of it but i think on some of these other grounds and yet the the place where i think it's really interesting is one you know maybe we need to begin decoupling the idea that worth is work just totally right maybe we need to start saying you know, just by being, but just by growing up in the United States, by being a, a member of this country, by by being alive in a in a technologically rich age, that you know you're entitled to at least an above uh, subsistence you know level of living. That we're just going to say that that's that's okay. That's enough. Um, and what you do with it from there, you know, that's up to you. And you can make good decisions or bad decisions. But there's just some level of bottom compassion, a floor for for living that, that is going to be higher. But then the other one is the one you bring up, which is that. There is so much that is of value that we even believe now is of value that we do not pay for – raising children, caring for elderly parents, um, volunteering in the community, different kinds of of art. Um, There are all kinds of things that we understand to be truly beneficial to the human experience but, but we do nothing to compensate. And UBI does seem really interesting there and it seems interesting in its ability to give people more space to pursue those. So I do wonder about that argument for it and, and how you weigh it. What if you're wrong about the other stuff? What if we're not going to see this upheaval in the economy? What if the economy in 15 years is going to be a continuation of the economy you know over the last five? Uh, would you still want a UBI?
0: Uh, yes, I would in part because to me that there's been already a lot of disruption in a lot of communities that we can uh, make whole or at least more whole. But to your point about unrecognized work and all the upsides, I mean, like, if you can imagine and everyone listening to this, imagine a world where every American adult was getting $1,000 a month as a right of citizenship, where we are the richest, most advanced society in the history of the world. Our economy is up to $19 trillion, up $4 trillion in the last 10 years alone, and we can easily afford $1,000 a month dividend for our citizens. And what you would see then is that people would be able to spend more time with their children, uh, and this is all studies that you've seen, children's nutrition would get better, children's graduation rates would rise, children's mental health and even their personalities would improve and change, domestic violence would go down, hospital visits would go down, suicides and depression would go down, arts and creativity. It would be one of the greatest catalysts to entrepreneurship and creativity we have ever seen. And I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs over the years. We have to put more Americans in position to do work that they value intrinsically
2: instead of as a necessary means to survival. You write in, in your book that the freedom dividend would replace the vast majority of existing welfare programs. Um, which ones do you have in mind there? Uh, so my plan is to make the freedom
0: dividend opt-in. Like the last thing I want to do is disrupt someone's life who's relying upon welfare benefits or disability. So the, the goal would be to say, look, here's this other possibility. You can take it or leave it. And my understanding is that many, many recipients would end up opting in for $1,000 cash because it's either more than they're currently receiving or it's close um, and they would prefer the cash. And one thing that I would suggest is a, a friend of mine has a sister on disability and she wanted to volunteer in her community but then was scared to do so because she was afraid she would be deemed able-bodied and then would lose her benefits. And that to me is perverse. Like we we should not be keeping someone from feeling better essentially. And, and you can see it in the numbers where the rate at which people get off of long-term disability is less than 1%. It's virtually zero because no one's going to risk cash benefits in perpetuity for a tenuous part-time job that might disappear. So happily, universal basic income reverses those incentives where you're going to keep every dollar, whether you work or don't work, whether you feel better. And so that person then, my friend's sister, would be encouraged to get out and volunteer. And that's the kind of Empowerment that we need right now. Our systems are designed,
2: unfortunately, to
0: reward you less
2: if you become more functional. So, if I understand this correctly, um, so, so you're saying that people would have an option between continuing with the basket of social services they're receiving now, say you know subsidies from the Affordable Care Act and um, you know food stamps and, and and or SNAP and things like that, or being part of the Freedom Dividend program. Yeah, that's right. And, and so you would be replacing things, at least for those who opted in, like health care subsidies and, and, and the like. Well,
0: well, and you know, I'm, I'm running for president, and uh, one of my big platform elements is Medicare for all. I want to get health care costs off the backs of So it wouldn't Americans. replace that part of the... Yeah, so it doesn't touch the, okay. the, 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 the health care aspects, but it would replace food stamps, um, housing assistance, and, and other uh, income support type measures. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent...
1: And get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S Y L V
2: A N 29.com. I think there's this weird thing that happens in the UBI community. It doesn't happen among sort of careful talkers about it, but it does happen among lazy talkers about it where there is a fake consensus that gets drawn. You know, Charles Murray at the American Enterprise Institute has supported a uh, universal basic income. And so is Andy Stern, the, the labor leader. And people are like, oh, well, see, there's a left-right coalition. But Murray wants to collapse the entire welfare state, uh, and then give people what will end up being for many of them, most of them, in fact, who are actually poor, less. Uh, yeah, I, use, I I yeah, I think that's a terrible idea. I think that's inhumane and crazy. But but that I I just want to note that because I think that's where these diverge. There's this idea of a UBI being used to make the state more generous um, and there's a, a UBI that is used to make the state less generous and they both get to use the same um, label, but but they're very much not the same thing, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm out to eradicate poverty, which we could completely do right now as a society. And if you care about children, then this is the best way to make households and families stronger. If you care about women and uh, economic empowerment, this is a way to make it so that women can walk away from abusive or exploitative employers. If you care about communities of color, uh, they would benefit much more proportionally from $1,000 a month than other communities because they have lower access to to various jobs and and opportunities. This is the way that we can reform society in a way that actually serves all of our goals, our collective goals. And at least one study showed that if you were to alleviate child poverty, it would increase GDP by $700 billion because of better – health outcomes, educational outcomes, higher worker productivity, better mental health, we have to start investing in our people intrinsically. We have to say, we are the citizens and owners and stakeholders of this society. We can vote ourselves a dividend. uh, And it's up to us to build an economy that serves us because right now, fundamentally, this economy is not designed to serve human beings. It is designed to serve capital efficiency. And for a long time, that also served human beings. But increasingly it's going to be that having lots of humans working for a company is irrelevant or even negative for corporate success. And we can see this by the fact that 94% of the new jobs created since 2005 to 2015 were gig economy temp and contractor jobs because the employers said, you know what, I'd rather not have a full-time employee, I'd rather not pay health care benefits. And that's why so many Americans right right now are in that position. So we have to start recognizing that our economy is changing for good and that it's up to us, the citizens of this country, to rewrite the rules of the economy to serve us. We have to make the market serve us and not have us all be slaves to the market because the market is not going to care one whit about us
2: increasingly over time. So on the UBI itself or the freedom dividend itself, a couple of questions on how you've structured your proposal for this. Why only 18 to 64 why, why not give it to children and also why not give it to seniors? Yeah, so seniors,
0: and it's true. I, I'm, I have a lot of seniors who are angry <laughs> about the fact that the, the UBI cuts off at 64. Um, we need to strengthen Social Security because it's going to go bankrupt in, in 20 years. Um, the thought was that we would end up being the bridge um, from 18 to 64. On the, the child side, and as a parent, it would be an incredible value add knowing that your child as a citizen – was going to start getting $1,000 a month when they turn 18. But there is a principal agent problem where giving money to a child essentially means giving money to the parent who you hope will end up using the the money for the child. But uh, in, in my mind, it was better to wait until someone hit adulthood. And then as a
2: right of citizenship then they start receiving the freedom dividend but but this seems to me to be a place where the universality ends up putting people in weird directions right the, the, i think there's a desire in these plans to create equity so everybody gets or everybody between 18 and 64 gets $12,000 but if you're getting $12,000 and you're 26 and a single guy that's a pretty different thing than you're getting $12,000 and you're 26 and you're a single mother with two children and, and so I guess I, I don't quite understand that that rationale. I mean one of the things that's interesting about your book as a sub-theme is that you write a lot about how hard it was having two young children um, and you do that I think with a, an unusual level of of openness and, and, and honesty and vulnerability and I found that very compelling but this doesn't seem responsive to that, right? It, it actually – it seems almost – I don't want to say it's punitive to having children. It's not but it's worth less to somebody with children than it is to somebody without children.
0: Yeah, and and it's one reason why I wouldn't want to touch any of the existing social programs because many of them are designed to more robustly support uh, parents who are in tougher circumstances. Uh, And so the goal is to help make communities stronger. And and one of the things I'm excited about is that, again, if you have children, you know that they're going to be receiving this money. Uh, But it also, I think, would build better community ties where at this point then, if you had Let's say like a a sister and then a friend and then you'd pool your universal basic income and it would create more hopefully robust communal living arrangements. But I I understand uh, the issue that we're not paying children
2: directly like uh, before they hit 18. It seems like another thing uh, that people could do here is you could just have a UBI style thing for the children that's going into an asset category. Right. There are all these different ideas out in the world for baby bonds and and things of that nature to deal with wealth inequalities as opposed to income inequality. And if the concern is that you have a principal agent problem, it wouldn't solve the issue that kids need enough money around them to be fed and cared for and so forth while while they're very young. But at least conceptually, they could have a UBI, this same level of UBI going into some kind of treasury bond-based structure. Oh yeah. Uh, I and love then by baby the time bonds. they become 18, <laughs> they've got like a real nest egg.
0: Well, well, the happy thing is that, I mean, if, if you try and annualize, like, what is the value of a uh, $12,000 annuity, you know, yeah. it's, appro- it's approximately, you know, three to $400,000. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially what we're giving every uh, American when they hit 18. So it's sort of a baby bond without um, being a baby bond. But obviously, I, I, I love baby bonds. Um, you know, my, my parents didn't make one for me, and I, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like, would have loved one. How much does all this cost? How
2: much does your freedom dividend cost?
0: So the Freedom Dividend would cost a little more than $2 trillion, uh, which sounds like a lot. A year. In a, a year. Um, for an economy of $19 trillion, our federal budget's around $4 trillion. But it ends up being much more affordable th- than people would think based on that. So if you look at our existing social programs, we're spending between five and $600 billion on over 100 welfare programs. And so while I would not want to touch those, um, that spending does decrease the headline amount because if someone's already receiving 1300 on disability, then they would not opt in for the freedom dividend, and that reduces that, the amount. So that would reduce the amount by between four and $500 billion. So you're at about $1.6 trillion or so. Now, the big move we have to make, again, is that the big beneficiaries from artificial intelligence and technologies and software are going to be global tech companies like Google or Amazon— that are great at not paying a whole lot of tax. They'll just move it through Ireland or say we didn't make any money this quarter. Uh, It's one of the big issues we face as a country is that the organizations that are going to benefit the most from automation are not going to be paying into the, um, the public coffers very much. So we have to implement a value added tax and our economy is so vast now at $19 trillion that a value added tax at half the European level would generate about $800 billion. Um, which gets the cost then down to about $800 billion is the the, the remainder. Now, the the third and fourth components, the happiest one, is that if you put $1,000 into the hands of the American people, uh, an economy where right now 59% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, essentially, most all that money is going to get spent. And and money in the hands of an everyday American is going to do much, much more for the economy than $1,000 in the hands of a wealthy person or corporation. So the Roosevelt Institute projected that giving everyone $1,000 a month would grow the economy by about $2 trillion. And 25% of that $2 trillion growth would come back to the public in the form of tax revenue. Because with all the new businesses and uh, companies being created and spending, we get back about $500 billion of that. Uh, And so now you're down to a difference of only $300 billion, which you you paid for the freedom dividend up to 90%. And we get the last $300 billion for the fact that, again, if you alleviate child poverty, you end up increasing health outcomes, educational outcomes, worker productivity. And we already spend over a trillion dollars on healthcare, incarceration, homelessness services. So people are going to be using the emergency room less because they'll be able to. Uh, take care of themselves a bit better, people will be staying out of jail, which is obviously incredibly uh, expensive as well as being inhumane, you know, the, our penal system. It's terrible on several levels. So you get the last $300 billion through a combination of direct cost savings and value creation by making people healthier, more functional, better educated and more productive.
2: I, I want to focus on, on the VAT side of this because I, I think that's an, an interesting way to think about it. So value added to tax, um, for people not familiar super common in Europe, I think broadly considered the most efficient kind of tax. It basically acts as a big sales tax, but it's structured so it's paid at every different level in the production chain. Um, So it's much harder to evade. Uh, One of the things that surprised me when you used it as as a pay for here though, is that it's regressive. You mentioned earlier that Ivanka Trump spends more than somebody who makes $25,000 a year, which is certainly true, but she spends a much lower percentage of her income than somebody who makes $25,000 a year. She saves much more. The value added tax is a much less of a big deal for her, whereas when you do progressive income taxes, you can focus on her and exempt the person making $25,000 a year. And then, if you've also got a lot of people who are not opting into this because they're the poorest of the poor, and they're making more potentially out of some of the the, the structures they're currently in, where they are, are getting you know money for their children through different programs, and they're they're on disability and and whatever, I do wonder if you don't have a surprisingly regressive pay for structure here, that might end up clawing back more of the benefit than than one might expect.
0: Yeah, you're 100 percent right, Ezra, and that is one of the issues um, with the VAT. Though, again, in this case, the VAT. Is going dollar for dollar into the hands of American consumers, uh, but there are people that are currently living on defined benefits or on Social Security that we would need to find a way to to address like uh, any potential loss in purchasing power. But that that is a very real issue. You're right.
2: So you try to like exempt part of the VAT or something.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. You either try and exempt certain consumer staples, or if you're over a certain age, then maybe like you know, like when you go into a store, (laughs) like that that senior citizen card becomes very, very handy. (laughs) I mean, that there, but you would need to make some moves because the last thing you want to do is deprive people who need purchasing power the the most of some of that purchasing power.
2: Okay, so uh, amidst all this, you, you wrote this book. You've been doing venture for America for a while. And you've also decided to announce a run for president.' You're, you're running as a Democrat for president in 2020, I believe, with the exception maybe of John Delaney, the representative, a Democratic representative who's also said he's running for president. You're certainly one of the earliest candidates in the race. It's a big jump from running a, a venture for America to, to running for president. Why make that jump? Why not run for governor, run for mayor, run for, you know, if you if you want to serve publicly, why try to go all the way all the way to the White House in in one go?
0: Yes, I was just, just with John in, in Iowa. Uh, we had a good time together.
2: So, Which my, one of you got better cheers? Uh, um, you know, I'll leave it to John to, <laughs> uh, to, to say. you got to show more killer instinct than that. He's going to say me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he might not because John's a very good, generous guy. So my viewpoint okay. is that we are in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transition in the history of the world. And the third inning has given us Donald Trump. And by the time we get to the fifth or sixth inning, which includes robot trucks, uh, retail stores closing right in the left, call center workers getting automated away, our country will be in danger of becoming entirely unrecognizable. And we do not have much time. Um, we have five to 10 years to try and make a big move that will address the root causes of why Donald Trump is our president today. And in my mind, that is because our government has been completely absent around Uh, the changes that we've been going through. It's like the elephant in the room that's tearing the country apart. And we're talking about uh, everything but where our political leadership can't even stare it in the face and say, look, we are automating away millions of jobs. Artificial intelligence is real. Autonomous vehicles are real, and they're going to be on the street soon. And we need to get with the program. So I'm running for president to offer real solutions for what is, to me, the central problems Of our time that are driving so much of the political and social and economic dysfunction and suffering. And so the plan to actually solve the problems, the freedom dividend, putting $1,000 a month in the hands of every American uh, adult, which would solve so many problems day to day for tens of millions of Americans, it's staggering how much of a difference that will make in terms of equity and people being able to provide for their families. Medicare for all, because we need to get healthcare off the backs of American individuals and businesses because it's a, it's a disincentive to hire and expand and start new companies. And the third thing, which we didn't talk that much about that we touched on it, is that we need to start measuring our economic progress differently because GDP is going to keep on rising and rising even as more and more Americans get left behind. So I would include measurements like childhood success rates, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, median income and wealth, environmental sustainability, proportion of elderly and quality care, and have those measurements be part of the economy. And so if you were to do something that pushes society forward in one of those dimensions, you would be rewarded. But I'm running for president, because I think this is an urgent, urgent situation. We are nearing a point of no return. And we need to rewrite the rules of our economy so that the economy works for us. And I thought the best way to make this happen in the right time frame was to run for president.
2: That actually reminds me. Uh, g- given what running for president takes, and and your focus there on alternative measures of both economic and societal progress, uh, of something I said we were going to get back to before, and, and people always get mad when I, I don't do this, of this idea of progress on the coast versus stagnation in the interior. And one of the things I, I think a lot about is the idea that we are concentrating economic prosperity in in certain places. There's much more of our GDP is concentrated in in urban centers and and other sort of high performing areas. And yet I don't know that it's so much of a coast versus interior thing. There's a lot of parts of California that are poor there, uh, and that have very high unemployment rates. There's a lot of the center of the country that is doing really, really well. I'm just curious how you think about that spread because, I don't know, I, I worry – you know, James Fallows and Deborah Fallows just wrote this great book, Our Towns, about this. But I worry that we've gotten in this narrative that everything is great on the coast and there's something going terribly wrong in, in, in the center and it just kind of flattens this very lumpy story of progress in our country way too much and, and also creates a sort of narrative of resentment that on the one hand is unhelpful, but on the other hand is is a bit untrue. A lot of people suffer in California. It's not by any means a country with the lowest unemployment rate or the highest median income. You know, and a lot of people are doing great in North Dakota. Um, and it's just different states of very different stories and even within them have a lot of internal inequality. Yeah,
0: I certainly agree with that. And one of the, the things, and you read my book so you, you know I'm animated by it, is – I don't think that everyone here in in New York on the East Coast is having a great time either. I mean, there are a lot of people that by the numbers should feel very, very prosperous and successful, but instead they feel like they're slaving away for, again, a tenuous uncertain future or in an arms race to try and supply their kids with certain opportunities and resources where our economy has become punishing and uh, increasingly inhuman for people at every juncture, in my opinion. Um, And you're right that that certainly there are many people who are very happy and and prosperous in other parts of the country as well. Uh, You know, I met some of them. And the goal is to make it so that in, again, the richest and most advanced society in the history of the world, that we have a growing sense of prosperity that's independent of region. And hopefully we can make choices as to where we want to live and what kind of work we want to do. But right now there is certainly uh, a sense among at least some people Then in order to access certain types of opportunities, you need to get to one of a handful of metropolitan areas. And by the numbers, uh, I think it's literally like 80 percent of the new business formation took place in one of 20 counties in the United States. So there is this hyper concentration of certainly money and increasingly talent in certain areas. All right. The
2: question we always used to end the podcast is, what are three books you've read along the way here that have influenced you and you've recommended the audience? And so now I pose it to you. What are three book recommendations you've got for us? So I've
0: read all of these books very, very recently, and I... Thoroughly recommend them all. So the first is give people money by. I want to Annie say Mallory. I did. I did not push or pay Andrew under the table to recommend this book. <laughs> he definitely did not. Annie did. No, I'm kidding. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I read the book like other people did. I was actually a little hurt I didn't get an early copy, but I, I bought it, read it, loved it. Uh, it did a fantastic job of talking about universal basic income around the world and presented a vision for what it could mean to people and it's a beautiful vision and it's a vision I've committed myself wholeheartedly to making a reality here in the US. So that's book number one. Uh, Number two is a book called AI Superpowers by a guy named Kai-Fu Lee that is coming out in September. So that one I did get an early copy, made me feel special. But it's on sale now and Kai-Fu Lee used to run Google China. He's one of the foremost experts on AI in the world. And he predicts that AI is going to decimate American jobs at very, very high levels. He's in the Andrew Yang camp of this is going to get very, very bad and very hairy and very scary pretty quickly. So that book I learned a lot from. It also suggests that China is in position to leapfrog us in AI because they have more access to more data, which is like food for AI. So that's book number two. And then the third book is a book called Squeezed by Alyssa Quart that came out recently and it talks about how middle-class Americans can't afford America anymore, which is something that I agree with wholeheartedly, which is why I think we need to give Americans a raise and the most direct way to make that happen is through universal basic income.
2: Andrew Yang, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. It's been great being here. Thank you to Andrew for being here. Uh, that was a, a lot of fun as a discussion. Thank you to my producer, Julian Weinberger, and my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Pine Show is a Vox Media podcast network, network podcast, podcast production, and we'll be back next week.